Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Victoria Rocha. And I still don't know what I've done wrong because if you don't know this, 11-year-olds are fucking idiots. (laughs) That and more. But before that, I just want to say thank you so, so very much to those of you who have supported our Patreon. We always give a little shout out to people who have pledged $25 per month or more. And so this week, I have to give a little shout out to Bennett Purser. Thank you so much, Bennett. And yes, if folks, if you have not been to patreon.com slash risk, go check it out because we put up a new bonus story every week. We put up check-ins from me, interviews with the storytellers, interviews with people on the staff. Sometimes there's videos or photos that we share there. There's all kinds of bonus stuff to be found there. And let's not beat around the bush. This is a very, very scary time for us as far as keeping this business afloat. We're Now having meetings about where exactly we can start cutting back um, because, you know, we want to keep this sustainable, but um, we're going to have to start doing less in some areas because advertising has dried up a great deal. Uh, Corporate workshops have uh, seemed to be put on hiatus. So our income streams have suffered tremendously. So it means the world to us. It absolutely means the world to us. We have every intention of keeping risk running as long as we possibly can. Quite frankly, I don't know what I would do. Uh, All right, let's not even think about that. Um, Yes, please support us at patreon.com slash risk. And there's a lot of perks and benefits to doing that that you can find there. Also, please follow Risk's social media on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're at Risk Show. You can always find out when the next Risk live stream is happening from our social media. And our next live stream is on Thursday. That is June 11th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And listen, the last one we did this previous Friday to when I'm recording this was just extraordinary. These things are so meaningful to attend, especially right now when connection and community is so important. So the next one is Thursday, June 11th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Come on out and see us. And uh, it's pay what you wish. And tickets are at risk-show.com slash tour. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. 
But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers behind me now. I want to take a moment here to check in with our entire Risk audience. I'm recording this on June 7th, 2020. And as you know, since May 25th, the day that George Floyd was brutally murdered by police in Minneapolis, a massive amount of protesting has been happening around the country and around the world. We are living through a truly extraordinary, once-in-a-lifetime sort of moment in our nation's history. Millions of Americans have finally begun standing up, acting out, and working for change. Millions have been taking to the streets and donating to help the more vulnerable, participating in community mutual aid, helping spread the word about the Black Lives Matter movement, getting educated and helping other people get educated about the history of resistance movements, getting people registered to vote, calling elected representatives. In my lifetime, I was born in 1970, I have never seen so many Americans rising up in solidarity and supporting one another to fight for social justice. Our country has not been so well poised to push positive change through in a long, long time. This is what it takes. It takes millions of people making it a priority to fight racism on a daily basis with direct action. 
making it a priority to push back against fascism on a daily basis with direct action, making it a priority to fight for a social safety net and a more economically just America on a daily basis with direct action. Now, it is very crucial, very crucial that we stay alert, that we stay awake, that we stay conscious of the darkness. We can't look away. There's a man on Twitter. His Twitter handle is Greg underscore Doucette. He has compiled almost 400 videos at this point of vicious, sadistic, out-of-control police brutality, police terrorism from the past several days. It is crucial that we remember big corporate media outlets have all kinds of habits of whitewashing and sugarcoating and obfuscating about this sort of thing. So pay close attention to citizen storytelling. Pay close attention to independent journalism on the left. Stay plugged in about what's really going on. Be judicious about where you're getting your information. I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that what we are pushing against is fascism. Our job is to see fascism clearly and to be a part of a giant wave of people actively working day in and day out to sweep it the fuck away. Now, it's crucial for us to be taking care of ourselves and taking care of each other in order to take care of the country. For me, meditation, exercise, eating healthy, seeing my therapist, staying connected to friends, and taking action steps every day to support the movement for social justice, donating, protesting, making phone calls, signing up for voter registration, volunteering, being vocal on social media, listening to the leadership within the Black Lives Matter movement. It's all so helpful and so nourishing and inspiring. What we're fighting for is that the United States return to the ideas that it claims as its foundation. We're fighting to make this country safe for vulnerable and marginalized people. We're standing for the United States to remain a democratic republic and one that prioritizes the well-being of all its people equally. Now, I have some amazing resources that I really do hope you check out. If you need to pause the episode right now to go bookmark these or jot these URLs down, please pause the episode. The first one's really easy to remember. It's called whiteaccomplices.org. It's a lot of hugely helpful resources there. And the other one is called the National Resources List 
for George Floyd. Now you can get that one by going to linktree slash national resources list. That's a much bigger resource even. It's phenomenal. That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash national resources list. And finally, I want to remind everyone of something. RISC's mission is to give a platform to people from all walks of life to share about their most meaningful lived experiences. We are always striving to include stories from people of color, and we believe that one of the best ways to spread support for equality for all is to encourage each other to share stories and to listen to each other's stories. We have received so many emails over the years from Risk fans saying things like, I used to be much more narrow-minded before I started listening to Risk. I used to have a lot less compassion and empathy for people who are different from me. I used to be unaware of how different some people's life experiences are from what I might have ever imagined. And I've been surprised to feel like I can relate or at least that I can sympathize with some of the people on the show that I might never have thought I would. So we created something that we're hoping a lot of you share with friends and family, share it on social media, share it via word of mouth. We created a playlist on SoundCloud of stories that were told on the Risk podcast over the past 10 and a half years by African Americans. It's called Black Lives, and it's on the Risk Show channel on SoundCloud. It's 30 of our favorite stories by black folks, and we're also going to be rerunning 12 or so of those uh, on our Thursday slots where we usually rerun stories from the podcast. So you'll hear them as reruns soon as well. And we sincerely hope that anyone listening to my voice right now who is African-American, please do consider when you feel up for it, you know, when it's a good time for you, consider pitching us a story or that anyone listening who knows someone who might have a good story to share now or somewhere down the line about race or racism or white privilege or anything along those lines, please encourage your friends to visit the submissions page at risk-show.com and pitch us stories. We need to keep hearing black stories and we need to be hearing stories of people transcending all that is ailing us right now. But again, I just want to say yes, this is stressful. Yes, this is overwhelming. But yes, this is also a moment so filled with possibility that it's almost miraculous seeming. This is the moment when we might just be able to plant seeds for real and substantial change. We'll have to be tending to those seeds for the rest of our lives. People keep using the phrase, the new normal. Well, let's make the new normal a lifetime of remaining 
civically engaged, a lifetime of actively standing in solidarity for a more humane society, a lifetime of creation, creating a more compassionate, more equal, more just world. Stay healthy, everyone. Stay connected, stay strong, and fight the power. Now, we have another fantastic episode for you today. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Andrea Coleman and a little bit from Risk fan Manolo Matos. But before that, we're going to hear from Victoria Rocha, who did the show once before. It's great to have her back. This was recorded at the Virgil in Los Angeles before everyone started sheltering in place. Victoria can be found on Instagram at Victoria underscore herself. And here she is now with a story we call 1-900-what? I had a lot of questions about sex. But like most of us, I didn't want to go to my parents for these answers. With my mom, I was constantly in trouble, pretty much for just existing. And I think if I had mentioned sex, she would have flown off the handle yelling. And then, because conversations are gateway drugs, would have assumed that I was about to have sex at 11 and would have grounded me for no reason and I would have ended up in my room sobbing because that's what we did. We fought cried, and then I was grounded. But my dad was the complete opposite. He would have answered all my questions and more in the most graphic details that I would not have been able to look him in the face for a week. And then there was my stepdad, Robert. He was brand new to me. They had only been married a year. And the most that I knew about him was that um, he had served in the United States Air Force for 20 years, and he had been drafted to go to Vietnam, but had done so well on his aptitude tests that they sent him to Pakistan to be an electronic spy. Yeah, I don't know what that is. I hear gas. Me too. Amazing. What is that? I don't know. His work was classified, so he doesn't talk about it, but I knew at 11, he probably knew how to fuck people up. Luckily, in that year, though, we had a nice relationship. He was a good guy. He had taught me poker. He had introduced me to uh, Costco cookies, chocolate chip cookies. And then when he saw that I was struggling to make friends in my last year of elementary school, he made me read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, (laughs) write him a book report, turn it in for review, and then have a discussion. And here's the thing. It worked. I made friends through a book. He really got me, but I was not going to write a book report on the joy of sex and then have a heart to heart. So parents were out. And despite being a very like outgoing, gregarious kid, I was not going to suggest to my friends that we steal a VHS video, probably fluff dreams or whatever that was uh, from behind the adults only curtain and major video. I had to go find these answers for myself. And in 1997, we were a pre-internet household. AOL dial-up was right around the corner, but hadn't quite made it to us. So I found my answers in something called the Reno News and Review. I'm from Reno, Nevada. 
Uh, and it was an alternative newspaper where it had like the underground take on local news, artsy movie reviews, but it was the back pages that were the most salacious and interesting to an 11-year-old mind. Because these were people that still had to like type up wanted ads and mail them in to be printed. So it was things like man seeking woman, woman seeking man, man seeking foot. And for an 11-year-old, this was like mind-blowing, even though it only called for more questions, until I found that perfect ad. It was a woman scantily clad in lingerie with a finger in her mouth and a little voice box bubble coming up and saying, do you want to talk to me, baby? Yes, I do. You're a woman with answers. I can tell. And this is how I found 900 numbers. Now, for those of you that don't remember, 900 numbers were either used for sex phone operators or psychics, like Miss Cleo, who was from the Caribbean and swept up in mist. I hear somebody used her right over there, and she had her crystal ball. Yeah. So I took this ad, this like treasure trove of like sexual goodness coming my way, folded it up, and slid it underneath my pillow. And that night, I pulled it out, and I pulled out my phone, which still the receiver connected to the cradle with a little curly Q cord. Everyone's asleep. I put my sheets over my head, and I dial my first 900 number. The message that I get initially is this very clinical, sterile voice telling me, this call is going to cost 99 cents per minute. And I'm like, nope, no it won't, I'm a kid, you don't know how to find me, I don't have any money, I don't have any credit cards, and I just ignore it. So the next menu that comes up is uh, all these women's voices, and they're introducing themselves, trying to seduce you to talk to them. Hi, I'm Trixie, and hi, I'm Cherry. And I'm just like trying to pick a voice that sounds the least like my mother. And as I'm about to pick my sex phone operator, I'm seized with panic because this woman is going to be an expert and I know nothing. And she's an adult. She's going to laugh me right off that phone and I just can't do it. So I go back because there was one other option if you didn't want to talk to a live person. And that was actually to listen to pre-recorded stories. And the thing is, I loved reading as a kid. That's why the whole you know, book report on how to win friends and influence people worked. And this was not a far stretch of the imagination of like audiobooks. And this is where Victoria's sexual awakening begins. Because who knew that washing machines were for more than cleaning your clothes? All those added vibrations that come into your climax? And who knew that ice cubes were for more than cooling your drinks? There's so many orifices that ice cubes can go in and like skin it can melt upon. I also learned about different types of sex, like lesbian sex. And I have this very clear, distinct memory of a story where two women go to dinner and they're playing footsie underneath the table. And one woman proceeds to take her shoe off and put her nylon stocking foot into the vagina of the woman across from her. Obviously, she's not wearing panties. And my mind explodes because this sounds so hot to 11-year-old Victoria, so sexy. But as an adult... As a short, fat woman, I picture this and I think, okay, I gotta, I'd have to slouch down and I'd have to like really reach and look for it like with my foot and I'd be like tensing up my ab muscles and it'd be like a workout and I would turn red and sweaty and this would not be a discreet encounter. I think we would be removed. And that poor woman's labia would be raw with sandy nylon texture against it. Not sexy. But that didn't matter to 11-year-old Victoria. All I knew is I spent the next month 
calling 900 numbers and masturbating furiously. So the end of the month comes, and um, my mom brings me home from soccer practice, and I immediately get to eating, and um, Robert comes out of the back, and he just says to my mom, I need to talk to you. I'm not thinking anything of this. Maybe 20, 30 minutes pass, my mom comes out, and she's stone-faced, and she's not yelling, which is shocking for her, but she's clearly enraged, and all she says is, go talk to Robert. And I walk back because I know I'm in trouble. And this military spy has got secrets that could kill me. I'm screwed. And he's standing there in the bedroom. And he's got, you know, legs. His feet are apart. And his spine is very erect. And his, like, shoulders are sturdy. And he's, like, total power stance. And he says to me, sit on the bed, pointing to the exact spot where my torture is going to happen. And I sit down, and I still don't know what I've done wrong, because if you don't know this, 11-year-olds are fucking idiots. (laughs) And he just lays these papers next to me on the bed and says, in a very even, commanding tone, what is this? And I look, and it's multiple pages of a phone bill with $300 worth of charges. $300 of masturbation material is staring up at me, And I just think, deny everything. (laughs) I don't know. I've never seen something like this before. Are those those phone bills? And he doesn't buy this act at all. He's piercing right through me because he's not just a military spy. He's a mind reader. And he just says, when you're ready to tell me the truth, I'll come back. And he walks out of the room. And this is crazy. This is weird. I don't, what's, what's coming next? So here's the thing, I don't want to tell him the joys of ice cubes and washing machines and nylon foot jobs, but he's still gonna make me own this. So when he comes back in and he asks me, so what is this? I just blurt out, yes, I made the phone calls, I'm sorry, but I don't say what the phone calls are. And then I just start crying and sobbing like a good preteen girl, hoping that he'll take pity on this like horny kid or just get so tired of my crying that he'll leave me alone. But no, he's well versed in this and he's gonna wait me out. So finally I just turn off the waterworks and he begins to lecture me. You've taken $300 out of the pockets of your hardworking parents and you, a a jobless child, we put a roof over your head and food in your mouth and clothes on your back and you've taken this from your brother. And the thing is, is Maybe other 11-year-olds would have been impervious to such a guilt trip, but I broke. I felt so guilty because I love my mom, and I love my brother, and I was coming to love Robert, too, in our relationship. And Robert knows a mark when he sees one. So he took advantage of that, and he goes, so how should you be punished? And I go, "I, I should be grounded. And he goes, for how long? and walks out of the room. And I'm left with my own thoughts. How long do I deserve? What does a masturbating monster need to do to atone for this? And when he comes back in, I suggest one month. And he goes, is that enough? And he walks out again. And of course, he's walked out, so that is not enough. And we keep going back and forth one month two months, three months. By the end of this, I have grounded myself for six months. You think it's over. He goes, what do you lose while you're grounded? 
And I, of course, say, the phone. And he goes, what else? And walks out of the room. And we do this thing again. By the end of it, I've taken away the phone, the TV, the computer, my friends, and the mail. I can't even receive a letter. I'm such a thieving, disgusting girl who only thinks of her own sexual pleasure. How dare I? And he agrees. Six months with none of those things will atone for the $300 that I own them. And that's how I go into middle school, a brand new school where I can't make friends, I can't entertain them, and I can't even correspond with them. We have a good relationship now, and in 2017, my family came to L.A. to see me off from my grad school graduation, and we're at this celebratory dinner, and Robert just thinks it's a hilarious idea if we tell, you know, Victoria tales, including $300 worth of 900 numbers. And it's fine. We can laugh about it now. So he and I are, like, going back and forth, telling the story from our own perspectives. But he has a little addendum that I've never heard before. So I ground myself for six months. I take away all these things. I hated myself for what I did to my family. And they didn't have to pay that bill. Because my grandmother, in a puritanical rage, had called up the phone company and read the riot act to them saying, like, how dare you not have safeguards so children can't access this? You've exposed my granddaughter to so much smut. And they reversed every single charge. Yeah. I was shocked. And then I was so impressed with my grandmother, yes, but also my stepdad. Because you know what? Yes, he was a military spy, and yes, he was a mind reader, but that man was also a goddamn wizard. Because he knew that 11 years old, what I needed in my life at that time was book reports and self-reflection. Thank you. In I was 15 years old and I had just started high school. I lived in Puerto Rico in a very small town at the center of the island. We lived in a neighborhood where pretty much all the houses looked the same. It was a middle-class residential area. Our house, as most houses in Puerto Rico, was pretty loud. But that day it was especially loud because everybody was excited because my aunt was coming from Atlanta. She had moved to Atlanta about 30 years prior and she used to visit every two years or so. That day I had been out riding my bike. I usually would ride my bike in the afternoons in uh, my neighborhood. 
and when I came back, my aunt was already at the house. I came through the kitchen door, and as I looked to my right, my mom and my aunt were sitting, facing each other at the dinner table. I could see that they had already finished eating because the plates were there. And I thought to myself, well, I'm late. But my mom pointed at the stove, and she said, the food is there for you. And I went and grabbed the plate, served the food, and went and sat down at the head of the table. My mom and my aunt were just chit-chatting about what my aunt had done. She was telling my mom that she had just come back from visiting my grandmother. My grandmother was my paternal grandmother. And she was saying how much my, my grandmother loved me and talked about me. She said to my mom, You can tell that Manolo is the light of her eyes. And my mom replied, Well, you know, she has a lot to compensate for. My aunt looked at her, you know, with a confused look, and she said, well, what do you mean? I don't understand. By this time, I was already eating halfway through my meal. And my mom said to my aunt, well, you know that, you know, she told me to have an abortion when I was pregnant with Manolo. This came like a punch to my gut. I, I couldn't even breathe when I heard those words coming out of my mom's mouth. And my aunt looked at me and she said, wow, you were lucky. I pretended like I didn't hear what they were talking about. And I said, what? And my mom gave my aunt this look of shut up. And my aunt got the message from my mom's eyes. And uh, she quit talking about it. She didn't say anything. And she said, oh, don't, don't worry about it. It's nothing. That day, I found out that my mom had made the decision to have me. She had had cancer about four years prior. And everybody was telling her to not have this baby. This really made me appreciate my mom. And at that moment, I realized how much she wanted me and how much she loved me. But also made me realize that my grandmother was a very, very practical and logical person. She was very worried that I would, I would be born with some kind of physical issue because of the radiation and chemotherapy that my mom had a few years prior. My mom was a very strong woman and she was also very stubborn, as you can imagine. Two years after this incident, I came back from college with my dad and we found my mom on the kitchen floor. She had died of a heart attack. So I only had her for about 17 years of my life, but in those 17 years, I really learned a lot from her, and I really admired the way that she was. Please give a warm welcome to Andrea Coleman! Thank you so much. Um, well, I started having sex late in life. I lost my virginity when I was 33 years old, my Jesus year. Yeah. Um, and to be perfectly honest with you, if it weren't for some kind of divine intervention, I would not even had had sex then. I was really not interested in having sex. I did not want to do it. I just felt like the minute I had sex, I would immediately be like shackled to some house in the suburbs. I'd lose all my hopes and dreams, all my freedom. I just did not want to do it. And I think the reason why I had these thoughts and ideas about sex leading to the loss of independence and freedom was because of my grandmother, uh, my, my dad's mom. I was really close to her and she was this like tiny, feisty, brilliant woman. She had a high school diploma, which was pretty rare for a, a poor black woman from the South uh, to have a high school diploma at that time. And 
my dad always described her as being super smart and then she met my grandfather they had sex and it almost felt like that like derailed everything that she could have done in her life my grandfather had a third grade education and wasn't always the nicest person all the time and it just felt like because she met him she didn't go where she could have gone in her life and i came from a pretty like religious devout family so i had a relationship with the divine with god and i felt like that's enough if i could have married god i would have so i didn't feel like there was any need for me to have a relationship with a guy and so i go on with my life and as i got older and like matured spiritually and age-wise i started realizing that some of the ideas i had about sex were a little bit off and then i probably needed some healing in that area and i have a, a mentor a spiritual mentor and he said to me one day that like if i was willing to be more physically intimate with like a guy like a human guy then i could probably even deepen my relationship with the divine even more which was really intriguing to me and it was like the first time i had this thought of like being willing to consider having sex with a guy because it felt like oh well maybe there's something to it like maybe it will take me to a higher level spiritually than i could go without having sex so i considered it and i kind of had it in the back of my mind i didn't know when it was going to happen or if it was going to happen but i felt more willing than i ever had before so i was taking this writing class in new york and on the first day of this class uh, this guy Thomas walks in now there wasn't like anything like he was cute but there wasn't anything like remarkable about him that made me think like this is the guy like this is gonna be the guy that I lose my virginity to like he was skinny like he rode a bike he was white I just was like not really feeling like this is gonna be the guy so we had the whole school year together in the writing class and then when the class ended after the end of the school year he asked me out we started dating i think you're going well and i told him in the upfront i was like i'm a virgin i've never had sex and i have no plans to have sex and he seemed cool with it so we kept seeing each other and then one night i was hanging out with him in his apartment in red hook brooklyn not hanging out we were like making out i guess we were doing both we were hanging out and we were making out <laughs> at his place in brooklyn and things are going great and like he's on top of me and I'm in the bed or we're in the bed and then I got like the communication like the divine communication like this could be the night like this could be the time to have sex and I was like what like because we we weren't exclusive like we hadn't told each other we loved each other we weren't like officially boyfriend and girlfriend so I was like now and I'm like really I was like okay so I stopped what he was doing <laughs> while he was on top of me. And I was like, I think I want to have sex. And he was like, what? Like surprised. He was like, wait, you, you want to have sex? And I was like, I think, I think so. And he's like, yes or no? Like you do or you don't? And I was like, I, I think so. And he's like, so yes, or are you saying something else? And I was like, okay, let me, let me pray about it. So he stayed on top of me and I like closed my eyes and I like dropped in to check in to ask the divine like what to do. 
And just to give you like some background, like the kind of relationship I have with the divine is, you know, in my day job, I'm a lawyer. So when I'm in court, if the divine tells me to stand up and object to something, I do it. I stand up and I object, even if I don't know what I'm objecting to, or if I'm like cross-examining a witness, the divine will be like, giving me questions to ask. Like it's a very like call and response relationship that I have with the divine. So to me, if I ask like, should I have sex? I expect to get an answer. So I asked and surprisingly, the divine did not give me an answer. He, the divine was like, look, you have to decide for yourself. I'm not gonna tell you what's on the other side of this. Like it's your body, you have to choose and I'm not gonna tell you whether or not it's gonna be okay. And I realized like one of the reasons why I was asking the divine to tell me what to do is because I didn't want to take responsibility for the choice. And I wanted to know for sure, for certain that I would be okay. And I didn't get that assurance. I realized I was going to have to take a risk and I was really scared. I, I didn't know what was going to happen. Like I, I didn't know if I would like immediately turn into a completely different person the moment I had sex and I was really afraid that I would like that my life would turn out the way my grandmother's had turned out and I wouldn't get everything I wanted in my life if I had sex with him but I had this like this like feeling that there was an opportunity for me like an opportunity for me to trust that I would be okay on the other side of this decision. So I took a deep breath and I opened my eyes and I looked at Thomas and I said, yes, let's do it. I want to have sex. And he was like, okay. So then he like leaped off the bed and he like went to get a towel cause he didn't know if I was gonna like bleed on the bed or something. He got a condom and I was like, okay, let's go. And then like, the minute his dick went into my vagina, the first thought I had was, this was the right decision. <laughs> this was an incredible decision. It just felt like, it just felt so right. I mean, like there were a couple of things going on. Like there's the physical part of it where it just like physically, it just felt very like fluid and smooth. And it was a lovely experience on a physical level. But then like on an emotional level, I just felt like, I still felt like myself. Like I was like, I'm still me. Like I still have the relationship I have with myself. I have this relationship I have with the divine is still intact. And then like now I have this relationship with this guy and I just felt like so triumphant. I felt like so proud of myself for taking the risk and making the decision. I felt like, oh my God, like we did it. Like, to be honest, I felt like I did it, but like, obviously it was a group effort. So like we did it, but I just felt like so <laughs> excited. And like, that was approximately eight years ago. And Thomas and I are still together today. Actually, I live with him now in that apartment in Red Hook, which is where I'm recording from right now. And I feel kind of like amazed that I still feel like this independent woman. And like my mentor said, like being more physically intimate exploded my relationship with the divine. And like, I'm like a different person, but I'm still also me. Like all of these other colors of myself have opened up and I still feel like close to my grandmother and I still adore her. And I just feel 
like so excited to have been wrong that um, my independence was not connected to having to be a virgin for the rest of my life. Thanks. This is Risk. This is Stevie Wonder behind me now. I have been listening to Stevie Wonder all weekend long. (laughs) He's been getting me through all of this craziness. And we just heard from Andrea Coleman. You can find her at andreacolemancomedy.com. Before that, a little anecdote. One of those mini stories lasting three minutes and 30 seconds or less. That one was from Risk fan Manolo Matos. So great to have Manolo on the show. We've known him for years. And listen, we put the call out on the Risk Podcast Fans discussion group on Facebook this week that we're especially interested in getting your anecdotes about experiences with racism or about racism or about white privilege, you know, all those sorts of issues. If you have incidents that you've lived through recently or in your childhood or, you know, that you can zero in pretty quickly on just one or two things happening, send them in. If there's anything you need to know, if you need any tips, just email me at kevin at risk-show.com. And before that, a little interstitial by Olivia Oyama. Oh my gosh, it was such a thrill. Olivia did such a beautiful job. A Risk fan who wrote in and said, I'm interested in these audio interstitials that you have. I want to create one for you. She did an amazing job. So thank you to Olivia there. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries... If you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey 
is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Like I was saying, you know, these live streams that we've been doing lately have been such psychological touchstones for me during this extraordinary time we've been living through. We we did one on Friday night, so that was the 5th, June 5th, and I'll tell you, it was just so moving to spend the night at the end of such a rough week with people sharing about things they really cared about. It just feels very, I don't know what word I would use for it. It just feels very vital to be connecting with everyone at these live stream shows. So please come to our next one. It is on Thursday, June 11th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, Tickets are at risk-show.com slash tour. It's pay what you wish. And as always, it's going to be an amazing show. Jen Kober, Jesse Rosen, Linda Bailey Walsh, and Ray Christian will be there. Let's get back to the stories. Now, when the sheltering in place first started happening in early March. Risk was supposed to be doing a show in Reno, Nevada. And so I flew out there to Reno at the same time that people were starting to be worried that flights might start being canceled and, you know, states were starting to shut down and Broadway was starting to shut down and all that sort of thing. And so here I was out there in Reno, we had to cancel the show and I had to spend a couple of nights in a hotel hoping that I was going to get back to New York City. Now, during that time, I reached out to one of the storytellers who was supposed to tell a story out there in Reno at that show, and I invited her to my hotel room to tell me the story 
so that we could do it radio style. That was Melissa Bond. And here she is now. Jeff Barr, our episode editor, was able to turn her story into this. This is Melissa Bond with a story we call Beautiful Boy. When I get pregnant for the first time, I cultivate this really dreamy Earth Mama Disney fantasy. And it goes like the following. A very difficult, yes, but ultimately beautiful birth at home with my husband Sean crying soft man tears and our doula Crystal singing while I drop our firstborn like a mango. But this isn't how it happens. What happens is we labor at home for 36 hours, at which point I turn to Crystal and Sean and say, you know what, you guys? Screw the Earth Mama fantasy. Screw the hypnobirthing. I have lost my bubble of peace. I want to go to the hospital. At this point, Sean looks like totally crushed, you know, because for him, having the baby at home was like catching that winning touchdown in the Super Bowl. But he could see what was not happening, so we go, where our son Finch is born via emergency C-section. Five days later, Finch and I are still in the hospital, and um, Sean and I have to make a 2 a.m. run to the neonatal intensive care unit because the nurse has told us that he is not getting enough oxygen. So we arrive in the glass-walled room of the NICU, and Nurse Robin, she's the one that told us, is standing there, and she says, okay, we're going to do an EKG. They're doing all kinds of antibiotics. They're going to do all kinds of tests to find out what's going on. He is in excellent care. You two go home, get some rest, and come back tonight when the tests are back. And you have to know that in this moment, a wailing begins in my chest and it just doesn't stop. So we go home and we come back that night and I'm holding on to Finch who is just so tiny. He's like barely five pounds and he's got these little bird wrists and these just amazing blue eyes that I don't think newborns have. And and my husband Sean is like folded up in the chair next to me. He's this really tall guy, you know, almost six feet, but he's just folded in and he's got his cap pulled down and his eyes are just pinned to the floor. So we are waiting there and after a few minutes, Dr. Templeman, who's the pediatrician on call, walks in and he's got this air of a monk. And he doesn't look like any of the other doctors. He's not wearing scrubs, and he's gentle, and he sits down, and he looks us in the eyes, and he says, Okay, I want you to know that the tests have come back, and Finch's heart is just fine. And it's like I can breathe. And then he says, But you have to also know that Finch has tested positive for trisomy 21. 
he has Down syndrome. All sound gets sucked from the room. And I look down at my perfect Finch, and I just can't reconcile what I see in my boy with the pictures that I've seen of people with Down syndrome. I mean, the only one I've actually seen is uh, one that was taken by the famous photographer Diane Arbus in the 70s. And in the picture, there are two people with Down syndrome, and they're standing in this barren field, and it's Halloween, and they've got these weird masks on, and these white billowy nightshirts, and they are holding on to one another's hands like they have no one else in the entire world and the whole scene is sad and it's so terribly lonely and I'm you know totally crying at this point and Dr. Templeman looks at me and he says hey hey you're going to be just fine you know they have early intervention therapies for Finch now he's going to get physical therapy occupational therapy speech therapy until he's three he is going to do everything a normal child does. Just going to take him a little longer. And at this point, Sean kind of unfolds out of his chair and sits up and he's able to choke out. Is he going to be able to talk? And there's a beat. And Dr. Templeman says, he will talk. We just won't know how well for a while. So a week goes by, and then they send us home with oxygen tanks and a monitor and 12 feet of tubing, but we get to bring our boy home. And it's at that point that we make that broader call, you know, to the larger circle of friends and family to tell them the diagnosis. And the best call was to my friend Ivy, who said, you have a beautiful boy, and you're going to have a beautiful life with him. It's just going to be different. And the worst was a relative who said bluntly, I'm so sorry. As if my boy was broken. And I could feel that wail begin in my chest again. Because when I had imagined myself as a mother, it was just a you know slight modification of what I was already doing. I would still be the stay-at-home artist and magazine editor, and I would grab Finch, and I would put him in the front carrier, and we would go to art walks, and we would go to poetry readings, and rallies, and protests, and there would always be enough milk, and there would never be a messy diaper change. All of which is to say that I was clueless. I had no fucking idea what it meant to be a mother. And now, now that I was mama to a boy with Down syndrome, it's like I had no cliche on which to write the story of me as mother. And the truth is, I had never known anyone like him. So in that first month, I cry a lot. The physical therapist would come, and Finch would be on his little yellow mat with the partying elephants and he wouldn't be able to lift his head for even a second and it was like he had gotten a d on his report card and sean would come home from making beautiful landscapes and other people's gardens and he would say so any sign of crawling and i would say no and then i would go and cry by myself in the bathroom and i i'd love to say that you know at this stage that Sean and I had lots of deep and meaningful conversations about what it meant to be parents of a child with Down syndrome, but we had both had 
really like made for TV movie bad childhoods. So we just resorted to what we knew, which for me was writing. Like that was the place that was safe where I could ask all of those hard questions. Like, what kind of mom am I going to be to a boy with Down syndrome? And how am I going to be in the world now? And for Sean, his coping strategy was running until he tasted blood and making jokes like any kind of deep emotional content he had to make a joke about it so we stuck to the basics you know he would come home any sign of crawling i would say no and he would say okay did he poo and i would say are you kidding me like constantly and he would say okay is it the was it the curry paste kind or those little nuggets that make him cry and the truth is that even though we couldn't talk about it with one another, we loved him with a ferocity that was like animal. And I don't know, maybe it's the parenting thing. You know, evolution has your back, so you keep them alive. Or maybe there was something about him having Down syndrome that created a vulnerability inside of us we didn't know existed. But there was also something about the way he was in the world that I had never seen. Like he did this thing we called the rapturous air. Look, I would be holding him or he'd be sitting in his little carrier and his eyes would get huge and he would start shivering and he would be looking at something. And it was like William Blake had arrived to show Finch the face of God. And then he would do this other thing where I would be like carrying him and I would just look around and all of a sudden I would realize he was making eye contact with me in a way that was so connected and so profound. It was like I was staring into the eyes of a Zen master. So three months go by and we've got game. We're feeling good. We're feeling normal. Finch is doing his Down syndrome calisthenics. He's got his early intervention therapies and a friend gives us tickets to see Sting. And we are euphoric. We are gonna go out for the first time. Without our son, we get a sitter and we go to this massive outdoor concert venue and we get seats right up front and we're sitting there. And the first thing I do is begin texting the sitter. I'm like, so hey. How are you guys doing? And she says, we're fine. He's licking his stuffed unicorn. And I say, does he miss me? And she says, he's forgotten you exist. So I stop texting. I'm sitting there in my maternity shirt with my nursing pads shoved into my bra. And I'm watching this opening band. And I have no idea who they are. And I am feeling just like totally out of place. So I signaled to Sean that I'm gonna go get us some beers and I go walk to the beer garden where everybody, it seems, has a piercing or a tattoo. And I realize that I'm like standing at the threshold of identity. Like I used to be that artist and writer who was really interested and cool. And now I was mama to a boy with Down syndrome. So I get our beers. And I'm walking back and I take the same route that I had taken, but all of a sudden I look up and I see him, the radiant boy. This is what I, I call him now. He's like 17 or something and he's got this amazing wavy brown hair and these deep blue eyes and he is just looking rapturously at the stage and he's so beautiful. And 
And then I see that he's in a wheelchair. And he's got his mom sitting next to him wearing this soft yellow sundress. And then I see all of them. There are people in wheelchairs and people with soft bodies and people with wide set eyes like my beautiful boy. And then I see the sign underneath them that says section for those with disabilities. And I think, how did I miss this on the way here? Like, how could I have been so blind? And then I realize I have been this kind of blind my entire life. And I'm crying at this point. And, and I look up and I actually lock eyes with the radiant boy and his gaze is so uncloaked and so deeply connected that I, I realize in that moment the question I've had my entire life of how I want to be in the world is answered. I want to be like that. I want that kind of uncloaked nature. I want that deep connection immediately. And that wailing that had been in my heart, I realized it was the sound of my heart cracking open. So I'm like crying at this point. And I just blow this kiss up to the radiant boy and his smile is so huge and he catches it with his whole body like he leans back and closes his eyes and smiles and then he leans forward and looks at me and kisses the air in front of him and it is like this glistening thing coming down and I am laughing and I am crying and I reach up and I grab it and I press it into my heart and he is laughing and then I hear Sting come onto the stage and so I wave goodbye to the radiant boy and I am like running and I am jumping over chairs and I am knocking over beers and I land in my seat next to Sean who looks at me and, and mouths are you okay? And I say, fuck yes, I am so okay. And Sting comes out and he starts singing Wrapped Around Your Finger. And I am up on my seat and singing at the top of my lungs. You can sit at me, the young apprentice. But between the Things they wouldn't 
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is The Police behind me now, and we just heard from Melissa Bond. You can find Melissa at melissaabond.com. Don't forget our live stream coming up on Thursday, June 11th at 9.30 p.m., that's Eastern Time. Tickets are at risk-show.com slash tour. It's pay what you wish. If you're a fan of my old sketch comedy group, The State, we will be putting on a live stream of our own on Wednesday, June 10th at 9 p.m. Eastern. You should look for ticketing information at the-state.com. If you are interested in doing storytelling coaching with me or coaching around writing a memoir or putting together a solo show or putting together a new podcast series, any of that sort of creative narrative sort of mentoring, I am at kevinallison.com. And if you would like for me to make a little personalized video message for you or someone in your life, that's at cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. All of Risk Social Media is on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Risk Show. Don't forget there are all kinds of opportunities for education at thestorystudio.org. That's our school. Everyone who coaches the storytellers for risk are faculty members at the Story Studio. We do one-on-one -on -one training. We do workshops where you can be meeting online with a bunch of other students and getting feedback in online classes. We do corporate workshops with staffs of businesses. That is all at thestorystudio.org. Just one final mention that we are very actively seeking stories from African-American voices right now. So listen, if you have ever thought maybe I should give it a try, we do all sorts of coaching behind the scenes. We can help you, you know, put your story together. That's what we do with everyone. Or if you have a friend or know of someone or see someone even, you know, in the news or a blog post or a Twitter story or whatever, alert us. You know, write to me at Kevin at show.com if you think, holy cow, it seems like this guy might have a good story to tell. Let me know about it and I'll write to that guy. Just email me at Kevin at show.com. And once again... Stay strong, folks. Stay active. Stay engaged. And let's keep hope alive. Let's keep creating. Keep helping one another. Keep learning. Keep educating. Keep showing up. Keep rising up. <laughs> folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
I don't know.